0: We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 today. If you have a Bible or device, that's where we're going to be. Seven weeks in, we've finally made it to chapter 3. We're really cruising. We're going to continue on in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1 described for us the glorified Jesus. In all of his glory, with all of the extreme things that it says about fiery eyes and feet of bronze and all these amazing things. And then chapter 2, we began to read these letters which I do love, Landon Fleming, I do love the letters because they are the words of Jesus written to his church. And so we're going to continue on in that. We've already read the first four of those letters. Ephesus was our first. That is the church that left their first love. They're still doing the right things, but their motivation is completely lost. They're doing the right things just to do the right things not because they are in love with the Lord and the gospel. Smyrna is a church that was enduring severe persecution. They're being literally killed for their faith or all kinds of other things. And and Jesus just says, I understand where you are. And and you just kind of continue to hold fast and be faithful. Pergamum, which is where Jesus says, where Satan's throne is, that'd be pretty crazy to live in a city, and Jesus says, hey, that's where Satan lives. Okay, so he says, I understand what you're going through living there. He, he explains to them, stay faithful. And then last week, we talked about Thyatira, a church that was tolerating people within their own congregation that were teaching heresy and lies. A, a woman that they called Jezebel in that letter is going around teaching them, you can just fit right into the systems of this world. You just can continue to worship the false idols. You can continue to give in to the sexual immorality, and it's fine. It'll just go together with your worship of the Lord. And, and the Lord says, that is absolutely not okay. It is not what I have called you to. And so now, today, we are going to jump to the letter to the church of Sardis. Before I jump into that, I have to ask you a question. How many of you have seen the classic movie, The Princess Bride? Okay. Who loves the movie, The Princess Bride? Okay. Conversely, who has terrible taste in movies? Okay. Just checking. In the movie, The Princess Bride, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about ruining anything. It's 35 years old. Okay? So if you're like, don't spoil it. Come on. In this movie... There's a primary here named Westley. By the way, did you know his name is Westley? Not Wesley? I don't understand. Okay, Westley. Westley. No, Westley. Anyways, that doesn't matter. (laughs) Westley is thought to be dead. Something happens to him and they're like, he's dead. But his friends, Inigo Montoya and Fezzik, take him to Miracle Max, to see if Miracle Max can do anything for him. After inspecting Wesley, Miracle Max tells his friends, this is his quote, it just so happens your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And of course, if you've seen the movie, Miracle Max brings Wesley back from the brink of all dead because of true love. True love's kiss, yes. And Wesley rescues Princess Buttercup, and everyone lives happily ever after. So, the question is, why am I talking about one of the greatest movies of all time? Because Sardis is mostly dead. They are mostly dead, and they need a miracle, like one that comes from Miracle Max, to come back from the brink of all dead. Let's read what Jesus tells John to write to the church of Sardis, and you'll see what I mean. Revelation 3, chapters 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. talking about Sardis. It's another ancient city. It's kind of around, we talked in the beginning, there's there's a big loop of cities. We're now on the other side of the loop, completely opposite from Ephesus. This is an ancient city, even at that time, even when this book was being written a couple thousand years ago, it was already an ancient city. It's been around since about 1200 BC. And before the time of the Roman kingdom, Sardis was actually the capital of the Lydian kingdom. Around the year 600 B.C., it was one of the most powerful cities in all of the ancient world. But then by 133 B.C., it came under Roman rule, and it had a Roman theater and a stadium and a temple to Artemis. They worship Artemis just like Ephesus did. Hey, guys, please stop. It was a wealthy and prosperous city. They had a nearby river called the Pactolus. And the Pactolus was a river that was full of gold. And so they would go and they would pan gold from there. And because they had gold and silver there, it became the first place where gold and silver coins were ever stamped. It also had a tremendous wool, wool garment industry. Some people believe it's the place where Aesop, you guys remember Aesop's fables? They believe that's where Aesop was born, possibly so there's a lot of rich history in this city because it is at the juncture of five major roads. And so there's people coming from every direction to Sardis. And so it becomes this place where there's a lot of trade happening. There's a lot of business happening. And so it's it's an alive city. But by this time that this letter is being written, it, it has become a shadow of what it used to be. You could say it's mostly dead compared to the vibrant life that it once had. One of the most important things you need to understand about Sardis and this is I had to look up pictures because I didn't believe this but around 3 sides of Sardis's acropolis there are 1500 foot rock walls. It is basically completely impregnable to any enemy. The only way that you can get to the acropolis is from the south. And so they believed as long as we watch the south, nobody will ever be able to come and destroy us because we have these massive walls. Nobody can possibly get up. And so they had this sense of invincibility that nothing could destroy them. And they were so confident in their strength because of their walls that they didn't even bother to defend those walls. They were so confident in their own strength power, that they didn't even bother to protect themselves. And that's exactly how Sardis was captured. Twice. Two different times over the course of about 300 years, Sardis, growing arrogant again, said, we don't even have to have guards on these walls. As long as we just keep our eyes south, everything's fine. And two different times, enemies sent. You can imagine how Nerve-wracking it would be to be this person. The king would say, you're good at climbing. Go climb that 1,500-foot wall. No ropes, no safety. Climb up that wall. Once you get up that wall, go into the city and open the gate so that the rest of us can come in. In two different times, Sardis is taken by enemies. Now, this is a side note to this message, but it's an important one. So listen. Don't stop protecting the things that you think are your strengths. We do this. We think, hey, there's this part of my life that's solid. And I don't need to protect. Like, it's fine. And those are exactly the parts of our lives that the enemy wants to come in and destroy. If you have a solid, amazing marriage, that is incredible. But don't just think, like, ah, I don't need to work on my marriage. I don't need to protect my marriage. We're fine that's where the enemy will come in and seek to destroy. If you have a solid family, that's amazing. Don't just think like, ah, oh, they'll be okay. If you're a business person who works with integrity and you just think, I don't need to worry about that. I'll just, oh, That'll always be my strength. Don't lose sight of that because it is those walls that we don't pay attention to that become our downfall. Don't rest on your laurels and rest on your Sense of invincibility like Sardis does, because it will be your downfall. A side note, I'm getting off my soapbox for a second. Back to the scripture. Verse one. Jesus is introducing himself. Each of these letters, he gives an introduction of who he is, and in this one he says, Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We talked about this in the first week. What this means is he's saying, I am sovereign all of the leaders of the churches and the Holy Spirit himself, I send those people. I am sovereign over all things. So you may think that you are invincible. You may think that you have everything taken care of, but trust me, I am the one who is sovereign over all. And you need to understand that. He's trying to get them to understand that his authority is the authority. And then Jesus gets right to the point. And he doesn't have any commendations for Sardis. He doesn't start out encouraging like, hey, you guys are doing really good in this. Most of the letters he says, hey, here's something you're doing really well, but here's something you need to work on. With Sardis he gets straight to, there's a problem. You're dead. That's a big problem. You're dead. Interestingly though, Jesus tells them you're dead, but he doesn't, have any problems with their doctrine or their philosophy he doesn't say hey you're teaching heresy hey you're missing out or hey you've lost your first he doesn't have those things and so that's interesting because they've just grown apathetic it doesn't say anything about blatant sin not like the other cities Not like last week in Thyatira, who have jumped full force into the sexual immorality and the worshiping vials. It doesn't say any of that. They've just gotten lazy and apathetic. And he says, because of that, your passion for the gospel has dwindled to nothing. And he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead the church of Sardis is relying on their reputation that they once were a great church. There was once life and vibrance and good things happening, but that's all dwindled and they still are looking at themselves like, remember how great we used to be? Remember all the things that used to happen here? The people in that church probably think they're still that. They probably still think everything is good. They still think they're a great church that's living and active, but they have grown weary. It says that their reputation, people outside of their church look at them and think, like, yeah, that's a good church. That's solid. And yet the Lord looks at them and says, you're dead. Their perception of themselves is based on the past. But Jesus says, I know your works. They think their reputation can make them spiritual. But Jesus says, you're dead. They're similar to Ephesus. If you remember this from Ephesus, they've walked away from their first love. In fact, I think Sardis is where Ephesus is heading. If Ephesus keeps going down this path of losing their first love, eventually they will come to a place where they're dead. This is a surefire sign today, okay? Bring it back to today. Today. This is a surefire sign that a church is dying. If you go to a church and all they talk about is how great it was in our good old days. Remember when we were vibrant? Remember when we had all these small groups and all these things were happening? Do you remember how awesome it was? That's a dying church. Because they're still living on their reputation of what once was rather than being passionate about what God is going to do in the future. The scariest thing to me about the book of Sardis is that they are mostly dead and they don't even know it. They think everything's good. You probably look at the church and say, hey, we've got good attendance. There's good gifts. There's offerings. There's People are praying for each other and shaking hands and saying, hey, brother, hey, sister. They think it's good and they don't realize they're mostly dead. And what's even scarier than that to me is that it can happen to all of us we can believe that we're good because we're thinking back to how it once was and we're still resting in that reputation and yet we've grown apathetic we've distanced ourselves from the lord and one day you don't even realize it but you're mostly dead So what do you do if you realize one day or if the Lord clearly shows you one day that you are mostly dead? Well, this chapter gives us a five-point plan of what we need to do if we're mostly dead, which is pretty awesome. It's always great when God just says, you want to know the answer? Here's the answer. Number one, wake up. It says right there in that verse, wake up. This means we have to recognize that we're mostly dead. Realize there is a problem. Right? This is like the first thing they teach you in any kind of recovery. You have to acknowledge there's an issue. Wake up and realize that you have fallen away and that there's a problem. Become aware that you have drifted away from Jesus into spiritual apathy. And then he says, strengthen. Number two, strengthen what remains and is about to die. This verse is how I know the church is mostly dead because something remains. Right? You read that verse, it's weird because Jesus says, you're dead, but then he keeps talking to them. If they're all dead, you just say, you're dead. Bye. Bye. (laughs) But there's something still there. So he says, strengthens what remains and is about to die. So, they're not all dead. There is a remnant, there is a sliver that they are still pursuing God just a little bit. And there's a few people in the church that have not given in to this apathy. And so, he's saying, you need to strengthen what remains. But how do you do that? Number three, remember then what you received and heard. This again is reminiscent of Ephesians. The Lord says, you need to go back and you need to remember why you fell in love with the Lord in the first place. What is it that happened in your life that showed you that God is good and loves you? What was going on in your life that you understood that truth? How did it change your life and heart? What was your passion for Jesus like? Were you reading the Word more? Were you worshiping the Lord in some way that you don't worship the Lord anymore? Were you serving in a ministry that you kind of drifted away from? What was going on in your life when you realized how good God was and that he loved you? You need to remember those things. And number four, he says, keep it. Keep it. The word remember in this passage doesn't just mean Remember once. It means remember and keep remembering every day. Continuously remember. He says keep those things. Once you you remember all these things, once you remember the things that gave you a passion for the Lord and a passion for the gospel, then keep those things on your mind so that you don't drift away again. It's again the, the idea of hold fast to it. And then number five, a word we don't like but we should Repent. Because once you remember why you were devoted to the Lord, what made you understand God's goodness and love, once you get all of that and you devote yourself to remembering those things continually, once you've done all that, repent. And repent literally means turn around 180 degrees and head the other direction. You have been walking away. It's time to walk Back. Repent and go back to the things that helped you know and love the Lord and the things that kept you from growing apathy. Those are the steps of revival in the church. I thought about that a lot. This I, It's always made me laugh when I see a tent that says revival here. As if you're allowed to plan that. The Holy Spirit brings Revival. I as a pastor can't just put a tent up and be like, we're going to do a revival. Because revival comes from the Lord. But there are steps that we can take that revival can start to happen in us. And these are those steps. Wake up. Realize that you have fallen away. Remember the things that made you love Jesus. Keep them. And then repent and walk back towards them. Those are the the building blocks of revival in our churches and in our land. It's revival for a church that was mostly dead. And the only way that it can be brought back to life is not Miracle Max as great as Billy Crystal is. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Reminds me of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? The prodigal son basically completely walks away from his father. To ask your father for your inheritance before he's dead is to basically say, I wish you were dead. He asks him for his inheritance. He leaves. He takes everything. He blows it on, on sin and debauchery and all these things. He finally humbles himself and comes back to his father, not even to be his son. He says, maybe I can work with the pigs that my father has. Like, he's humbled. But when his father sees him, He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the kind of dead we're talking about. His son was dead to him. His son was dead in sin. His son's relationship with him was dead. But with the power of God, he could be brought back. That verse gives me chicken skin. He was dead dead and is alive again I haven't even gotten to the point in my life yet and I've talked to some of you about this is when you have a child who has gone prodigal and your only desire I'm hoping that never happens in my life by the way I wasn't saying like that's going to happen I hope I never have to do this but I know some people do and it made me think about I, I'm always saying like man I can't wait for the Lord to come back I want them to come back right now. But if you're someone with a child who's prodigal, you're saying, not yet, Lord. Not yet. Because they're dead and I want them to be alive. And This is what Jesus wants for this church. It is the family business of God. Bringing dead things back to life is what Jesus does. It is at the core of The gospel. Look at what Paul wrote to Ephesus long before these letters were written. In Ephesus chapter 2, it talks about this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I listened to a couple pastors this, this week who they read this chunk of scripture in Sardis, and, and they, they, the way that they read it is just like, well, they're dead. And so they'll always be dead. That's the end of the story. And to me, I look at this verse, and I'm like, that's, that's against the whole point of the story. Jesus is all about bringing dead things back to life, it is the family business, it's the heart of the gospel. And Jesus is crying out to Sardis saying, wake up and come back. Rise from the grave. But Jesus is deadly serious about this. Notice this, he gives an ultimatum after he says, he says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night and you will not know what hour I will come against you. This language of coming like a thief is going to come up in Revelation again. It comes out through the whole New Testament. Why would Jesus come against one of his own churches? That's the question. Why would Jesus say that? I'm going to come against you like a thief. I think the answer is this. Right now, Sardis is modeling a lie. People are looking at Sardis and they're saying, look at that church. They've got a reputation for being alive. And Jesus is looking at them and says, you are modeling for the world and for your children a lie. That your reputation and your tradition and your actions are what will save you. So Jesus would not be good if he continued to allow that to happen in his church. He has to come against them and say, I will stop this church from lying to my children. They are modeling a dangerous lie, one that could harm future generations and their real relationship with Jesus. In verse 4, Jesus does acknowledge that there is a small remnant of believers who have not drifted away in Sardis. There's always a remnant. Look throughout the Bible, there's always a remnant, people that are remaining faithful. And he says, you, do, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Soiled garments is an interesting term. I won't tell you what that sounds like to me. But in the original language, it can also be translated stained garments, And the idea, there seems to be a connection for Sardis. Remember, they're really into the wool dyeing industry. And in their false idol worship, there was a lot of this idea of dyeing the wool different colors and, and part of the worship ceremonies for these false gods. And so there's this idea that they have stained all of their garments with the worship of false idols. He says there's still a few of you that don't have those stained garments. And so Jesus says... They who have remained pure will walk with me. As he rules over the new creation, those who have remained faithful will walk with them. Don't get it confused. It's not because they have earned it in their works. It's because they've just been faithful to him. Their worship has been devoted to him and to him alone. And Jesus says this interesting line too. He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. This is another interesting line because some pastors have taken that and said, you see, you can lose your salvation. Your life, you you can be in the book of life and then it can be blotted out. But I don't think that's what this is saying at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do that. And he understands something that the local people of Sardis understand. It was a common practice at that time, all over the Roman Empire. Every Roman uh, area or city had a registry of the people who had Roman citizenship. And if you were found guilty of a crime that was egregious enough to be found guilty and sentenced to death... And one of the things that they would do before they killed you, they'd have a ceremony where they would gather people together and they would blot your name out of the registry. It was the ceremonial way of letting people know how much they had messed up. That they were being erased from existence as a Roman citizen. Because Roman citizenship came with a lot of perks and protection. And it was almost like a, a final blow before they died to let them know, you no longer have that protection. And so Jesus is saying, I know that's how it works in the world, but that's not how it works in my kingdom. If you are saved, if you know the Lord, if you have a relationship with God, then your name is in the book of life. And people, this is very complicated. right? Because somebody will come to me and they'll say, but I know this, per- my uncle, he, he was a Christian and then he just walked away. I would say, and I know this sounds incentive, I would say if somebody walks away from the Lord, then they never really knew the Lord. They didn't actually know Jesus. Maybe they were fulfilling traditions, maybe they were doing things that they said, this makes me, this looks like the right thing, but they didn't know Christ. Jesus says, I will not blot their name out. Then he takes it even a a further step and he says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There's a direct connection between this and the Gospels. In the books of Luke and Matthew, Jesus is recorded. He says in Luke 12, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus is just confirming his promises here in Revelation. They've read the gospel writings, and he's confirming it, saying, I will be faithful to you. I will not let you down. If you are faithful to me, I will lift you up, and you will walk with me. He speaks to us with this piece of scripture that if we remain faithful to him, he will be faithful to us. That is the good news. That is the gospel, that he brings things back to life, and that he is faithful. In the last verse of this letter to Sardis, he finishes in a very similar way to the other letters, and I love it. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I really like that ending because he basically just says, listen up, the Spirit of God is talking now. Right? You ever been in class, and the teacher gets up and says, shut it, my turn like I basically did to you guys. This is what he says. If you have an ear, listen. The Spirit of God is talking. And shouldn't we be paying attention to the Spirit of God? Shouldn't we be paying attention when the Lord wants to speak to us and maybe has some tough words for us? Hey, you're mostly dead. But you can come back. Maybe for some of us, we have grown apathetic. We have distanced from the relationship that we once had with the Lord when we were passionate about Him and passionate about the Gospel. But there's no Miracle Max in our story. The only one that can change that is God Himself. And the Spirit of God speaks to us through His Word and He says, Wake up! Strengthen what remains, remember what you received and heard, keep on remembering those things, and then repent and turn back the other direction. May we who have ears, let us hear and heed the words of the Spirit of God. Because some of us may be mostly dead. And Jesus calls us Back, like the prodigal son, he says, "My son was dead, but he's alive again. Let's pray. God may it not be said of us as the church or as individuals that we're mostly dead. May we be alive and on fire, for your gospel and for you. But if we are, would you pound this message into our hearts to wake up, to remember and to keep remembering, and to repent? God, would you call us back from the brink of all dead and not let us go? We love you, Christ.